into the Word of God, Philippians 4.19 says this. My God will meet all of your needs. Everybody say needs. needs. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I read that scripture my entire life, but it's only recently as I begin to read this kind of with a new filter, I realize how much my needs matter to God. How much your needs matter to God. It's okay, everybody listen to me, to admit you have needs. Uh, our entire like, culture is built on not being needy. It's like, have you ever noticed how we ask questions? Hey, can I borrow your, uh, can I borrow your bathroom real quick? You know, it's like, I don't want to need, I don't need, it's like, can I borrow your bathroom for a long time? You know, it's like, it's like, we, it's like, I don't want to be too needy. Can I, can I grab just a couple minutes of your time? It's like the way we interact with people, we're so concerned about expressing, we don't want to be needy. Needy is a bad thing. Every one of you are needy. We're all needy and God cares about it and they're legitimate. And the Bible says, my God will meet your needs. Your needs are so important that according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, he intends to bring you the things that you need. All right? So let me tell you a story. I, I used to be a worship leader at a summer camp in Louisiana. How many of you guys ever went to summer camp of any kind? You know, you, you play hard. And, and, man, teenagers are just like a chemistry experiment. You know, the, the, they just they smell bad and things are happening. And, and they're growing up and, and their head's too big for their body. It's just hideous what's going on. But, but <laughs> so anyway, but at these summer camps, these kids would just play hard all day long. And especially in Louisiana where it's humid and extremely hot. And then at 8 o'clock at night, we would have a church service when everybody's completely wiped out. And how many of you know kids would fall asleep in church? Right? So I was the worship leader there. I was there 16 years, two months out of every summer. I would lead worship week after week after week, and then we would have these guest speakers come in, and these guest speakers, they get rested up, they're just there for one week, and they preach in the evenings, they didn't play hard all day, they were in their little air-conditioned cabin, and then they would preach in the evenings and be really offended and upset when these wiped-out kids would fall asleep. Anybody relate to this at all, right? And so being in the Bible Belt, you know, in Louisiana, these speakers, they'd be a little insecure when a student would fall asleep, and so they would, they would call them out, hey, hey, you wake them up. And uh, they're, they're being disrespectful in the house of God. They're falling asleep, right? And they'd use words like rebellious, you know, just real. These people, they're, they're fun at parties, okay? You know, it's like <laughs> rebellious. And, uh, and so was, we just kind of learned as a staff, uh, if a kid fell asleep, wake them up to keep them from being embarrassed by the speaker. Now, I, did, I led worship for 16 years. I don't know how many of you have ever felt irreplaceable, you know. I felt kind of important. And I thought, man, this camp will never have a worship leader as amazing, as anointed, and as humble as I am. And, uh, and the next year, Lauren Daigle was the worship leader after I, after I quit. So, But anyway, <laughs> so before that happened, right, this, this one kid in particular, really tall, played hard all day. Church is happening that night. He falls asleep like mouth open, like it was obvious. And we know the drill. The, the speaker gets a little insecure. So the counselor starts kind of moving over uh, to elbow this, this student and say, wake up, wake up. And the man who was preaching, his name is Don Boyette, and now he's my father-in-law. He was not at the time. Now he's my father-in-law, just a hero of mine. And so he was preaching away, telling a story, and this kid's asleep, and the counselor begins to kind of move across the, the, the aisle there, the row, uh, to wake up the kid. 
And, and Don Boyette says, hey, and I thought he was calling out the kid. That's what all the other insecure preachers did. <laughs> hey, except he wasn't calling out the kid. He was calling out the counselor. He said, what are you doing? And the counselor looks up and says, I, I was going to wake him up. And the, and the camp speaker says, why? Can't you see he's tired? <laughs> Feel free to lay down right now and take a nap. I'm fine with it. Okay? He actually was not rebuking the kid for being disrespectful in the house of God. He was kind of rebuking the counselor for not letting this kid get what he needed. Can't you see he's tired? In other words, and for the first time in my little religious life, I realized that people that are sleeping are not trying to be disrespectful. They're tired. And it's okay to meet your needs. And I saw this preacher in the house of God honor a kid for meeting, having his needs met. My God shall supply what we need according to his riches and glory. The question is, what do you need? I want to talk to you about two things every person on earth needs, okay? And you might have other needs, certainly you will, but I want to talk about two needs that every one of us has, and the first one is absolutely so essential, it's a survival need, and the second one is right next to it in importance. The first one is attachment. Everybody say attachment. We need attachment. I don't know if you know this, but babies who are born need to be held and kissed and loved, and they need to belong and they need skin-on-skin -skin contact. Do you guys know that? Do you know if a baby doesn't get that kind of attachment, that baby will die? So attachment is absolutely a survival need. We need, as a, the human species more than any animal, we need connection through more of our life, the seasons of our life, than any other creature. There's a study that was done on longevity, living a long time, and it was done at Harvard. It's, set, it's over 75 years the same study, the same population of people, over 75 years in the running, they're trying to figure out what causes people, what, what correlates with a long life. Now, this study was made up entirely of men because at the time, uh, only men attended Harvard. It would be sometime later that the truly intelligent students would begin to... And, uh, and so anyway, so some of these population that's being studied for 75 years, they became presidents. Other people had other, like, became homeless. And so it was like a huge spectrum of life experience. And what they found over 75 years of studying the same population of people is that the most correlated factor to living a long time, to living a long life, more than fitness, more than nutrition, those things are important, but more than those things, more than cholesterol, was the number and depth of relationships. If a person had a lot of friends and had a depth of relationship, there was a much more correlated reality to them living a long time than any other single factor. And they, they estimated people that lived in isolation, just they didn't thrive and they would die so much earlier. They looked at the, the equivalency, those actuarial differences of numbers of years of, of longevity, and they estimate that living in isolation is as unhealthy for you as smoking 15 cigarettes every day of your life. How many of you know we need attachment? In other words, we need to belong. We need to be loved. That's what attachment is. But now there's another need that all of us have, and that is the need 
to be authentic or authenticity. Also, I showed you guys a, a picture of my little bow-tied grandson, Johnny. Whenever he was first born, before he ever learned to say any word at all, he could express his needs very authentically. No pretense. So when Johnny would get hungry, he didn't say something you're like, <clears throat> um, excuse me, grandfather, <laughs> when you get around to it. <laughs> Would you mind getting me a little milk, please? <laughs> no rush. You know, nothing like that. What's happening is this little integrated kid connected with his mind, connected with his emotions, connected with his gut. He knows. It's like, I can't even speak yet, but I have a need. Bah! And we know we, we know that little baby has needs, and that little baby can't even speak yet because that little baby is authentic. You and I need both attachment, right, to be loved, and we need a place where we can be authentic, where we can be known. To be loved and to be known. I don't know if you know this. Maybe some of you are new to this uh, church community. But at the well, there's a place here where you can be both loved and known. Let me keep kind of drilling down on this concept of how we have these needs. And sometimes these needs bump up against each other. And when our need for authenticity bumps up against our need for attachment, we will sacrifice authenticity every time. All right, so let me give you some examples. Kind of head, heart, gut, right? Like some of us are inquisitive and maybe we're, we're learning about God and, and we just want to be able to incorporate the reality of God into our thinking. And so we ask mom and dad questions like, how do I know God is real? And mom and dad get threatened by the question, no, you just have to believe. And, and there could be some kind of tension that comes from a kid just trying to exercise their higher thinking and just help, help me understand how, how can I know God is real. Sometimes we actually discipline our kids for just trying to use their mind. You guys with me today? And we disincentivize, like we disconnect our kids from their higher thinking because sometimes we don't like the way they're asking questions. My nephew, uh, Charlie, <laughs> he's a really little guy, but he asked the word why all the time. Why, 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 why? And so my brother-in-law said, I just want you to count how many times Charlie asks why in a day. And so he did. And one day, so we haven't done this every day. But one day he counted, and it was over 200 times. How many of you know, eventually you're going to be disincentivizing that kid from thinking? Because I said so. Or what about emotions? So, so we disincentivize, we disconnect sometimes our kids from their, from their heads, if you will. What about emotions? Right? The Bible says to everything there's a season. There's a time to grieve. There's a time to party. There's a time to dance. There's a time to laugh. There's a time for all, to be angry. There's a time for all this stuff. Some of us, though, we raise our kids that they're, and we teach them there are only certain legal emotions. Joy, you know, whatever emotions connected to gratitude, right? But when our kid uh, is grieving because they had a toy taken away and they really cared about that toy, well, you shouldn't grieve. Well, the point is they are. And then we discipline our kids for having entirely appropriate emotions. You guys with me today? You're looking at me a little funny, Right? And sometimes when our kid's sad, it's like, come on, get over it. And, and we almost cause a, a, a little bit of a disconnection by discouraging them from being in touch with their emotions. Same thing with that primal self, that thing that moves us to act, that gut, right? Remember the kid on the playground? Maybe you were that kid. Maybe you've had a kid on the playground, and the bully walks in and kind of crosses the boundary and starts to antagonize a kid. 
man, I don't like bullies. Can I tell you? I just don't like bullies. I'm sure Jesus does, but I don't. <laughs> and like these people that step across your boundary and they start to kind of, you know, humiliate you or embarrass you. And sometimes little kids, it's like the spirit of Elijah rises up in them, the spirit of, of David, you know, and Goliath. And it's like, and boom, you know, it's like they decide to get into a little spiritual warfare. And, um, <laughs> And, and the point is they're defending their, themselves. They're defending their boundary. And oftentimes that is the kid that gets in trouble. Why do we do that? Pastor, are you, are you advocating violence? No. But I am saying we should stand up. We should teach our kids to stand up for themselves. To be able to like say, no, actually you should respect your boundaries and expect other people to do that too. But a lot of times we actually, and we mean well, it's nobody's fault. I mean, there are cases of abuse and neglect. But I mean, even in the mainstream of parental care, in a hundred different ways we're teaching our kids, don't be authentic if you want to remain attached. And there's a wound from it. And one of the results of that is shame. Now, sometimes when we do things that are wrong, we have guilt. Guilt is different from shame. Guilt says, I did something wrong. That's important to have sometimes. But shame is, I am something wrong. What is shame? Shame is very simply this. Now think about what we're talking about. Uh, attachment and authenticity. To be loved and to be known. Shame is simply, if you knew the real me, you would reject me. That's what shame is. And it's traumatic. You know, I, um, I left home when I was 16 uh, to live with another family. A family therapist got involved. There was some really any kind of abuse you can imagine uh, was my story. And this family therapist got involved and moved me out of my house and placed me with another family. And the person who did that went on to win the Louisiana Angel Award for her work with at-risk youth and when I tell my story, a lot of times, uh, I can talk about physical violence and other kinds of abuse. Uh, it, it tends to really hit people in a raw place. And people will come up to me sometimes and they'll say, um, I never had anything as extreme as what you experienced. And it's almost like they, they resonate with the pain, with the trauma, but at the same time, it's like, but, but my, my wound maybe isn't as legitimate as yours because I don't have the scars and the bruises from that. Does that make sense? And can I tell you something? The things that hurt me the most never left a bruise. I want to tell you one or two quick stories about that just to give you an idea of this, this idea of disconnecting from ourselves. And that's really where the trauma remains long after the bruises heal. So one is uh, victims of abuse kids often will um, urinate on themselves. They'll defecate on themselves. And it's a symptom of them not feeling safe. And so I didn't know that as a kid, and so I did that. I didn't realize it was because of my abuse, and I also knew that my father was embarrassed by me doing that, and he would become very angry when I would do that. And so I would go, you know, stay out of the house as long as I could every day to stay away from him, to be as safe as I could, and then would, would make those mistakes, and I would come home, and he would smell me and become very angry. And... Um, and that sh I was so ashamed of it. But you know, shame actually stuck me to those patterns. Everybody look at me. Shame is glue. Shame sticks you to the stuff that you're ashamed of. No, no, no. Some people ought to be ashamed. I don't think so. 
I actually don't think shame is ever your friend. If shame was your friend, then the accuser of the brethren would be your life coach, not your enemy. I'll let you think about that a minute. Right? Shame is never your friend. It sticks you to the things you're ashamed of. And so I was in that place. I was ashamed of it, but I just kept doing it. And so one day, I was very young. One day, my, my father took me to a doctor for other reasons. And in the conversation, he said, by the way, um, he's defecating on himself. And the doctor, not knowing my dad's abusive pattern, recommended discipline. And so um, the next time it happened, my dad took me to the bathroom. He unfolded a metal chair and he made me put my underwear. He said, strip. So there I am, completely naked. He puts this, my, my dirty underwear on the chair. He says, get on your knees. And then he pushed my face in my own waist. And then he made me sit there for 30 minutes with my own waist on my face. And he said, this is how people train their animals. Like housebreaking. And everything in me wanted to clean my face, wanted to protest, wanted to fight back. But I knew if I was going to stay attached, if I was going to stay in this house, if I was going to be fed, then I had to put up with that. Can I tell you something? That didn't leave a bruise on me, but that wounded me far more than any physical violence. There was another time when my, my dad said, you're talking too much. And, um, and so to punish me and to teach me a lesson not to talk so much, he made me sit with a pair of socks in my mouth. And he pushed it in really deep. And I remember the, the gag reflex, <clears throat> sorry, being triggered, but I had to just suppress it and just sit there with those socks in my mouth because I had to be taught a lesson. That didn't leave a bruise, but to this day, when I go to the doctor and they put that obscenely dry piece of balsa wood, <laughs> the tongue depressor, like, this is embarrassing. I didn't even say this in the last service, but my doctor makes me sit on my hands because I'll just, like, grab it and pull it out of my mouth. Those didn't cause bruises. Maybe you were never removed from your home. Maybe, maybe you don't have a scar, but some of you are so broken because you were separated from your thinking, from your emotions, and from your primal self. And then we come to church. And so many religious systems, so many churches, they just want you to comply. It's, it's almost the same kind of abuse. It's like if you want to be in our group, you got to do these things. Can't be authentic if you want to be attached. That's the difference between religion and healthy church like the well. One of the values here is authenticity. Yes? yes. Now with that in mind, I want to read to you a scripture, Proverbs 23, verses 6 and 7. Just, just with all that we've just talked about, think about this. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. In other words, stop requiring compliance from people who in their heart they don't want to be made to comply. For he is like the one who inwardly, who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. This is thousands of years ago. And here the writer of Proverbs is saying, stop abusing people by extracting compliance out of them when their heart is not with you. Is this connecting with anybody here? So here we are. It's like we keep choosing attachment over authenticity. And what we find is 
<laughs> different groups like different parts of us. We want to be attached to different groups. And so I become work Jonathan and I become friend Jonathan. I become father Jonathan. I become pastor Jonathan. I become romantic Jonathan. He's the one who smells good and showers a lot. And we figure out, depending on which group we want to be attached to, we, we present a little different version of ourselves. Not totally authentic, but mostly. And then there's a part in our life that it's authentically there, but, but we know if anybody knew about this stuff, they would reject us. That's where shame lives. And so you'll see these stories, you'll hear these stories about these leaders in the church I mean, people that are doing great things in the world, and all of a sudden something comes out about them, and their life blows up, their marriage blows up, their church blows up. And it's like, they had so many things going for them. How could they make such a dumb mistake? You guys know what I'm saying? Well, it's because of that. It's because there's something in their life that they just weren't willing to risk losing their community to uh, open up and say, can you help me with this? Can you shine light on this? Because of that, resentment, pain, and trauma begin to build up. People blow up their lives. But what if there was a place where you and I could be both loved and known? Where we could be both attached and authentic, and our authenticity would never threaten our attachment? What if we could be in a church where in our table groups, our small groups, in our church community, and by the way, let me get to the punchline, that's where you are where you can be loved and known, what would happen? Not just one or the other. To be known and not loved is terrifying. It's like, I know what you did last summer. You know, it's like, I know you. I don't love you, but I know you. That's terrifying. But to be loved and not known, it's comforting, but it's superficial. I had a person in my life who always used to say, you're doing good, Wiggins. You're doing good. And I thought, that's so positive. I love that, you know. But eventually, that's all they would ever say. You're doing good, Wiggins. You're doing good. And eventually, I'm like, what does that mean? Could you please be more specific? Thank you for your compliment. But does it have any meaning? You know, and it's like, no, you're just doing good. Well, that feels okay, but eventually, you guys understand? It's like eventually, it's like, that's kind of, that's not, there's no depth to that. But to be both loved and known is like being loved by God. You and I can begin to heal. All those different parts of ourselves we can bring into one bucket. Shame becomes unnecessary because we're no longer worried about people. It's like, will you reject me? You're not going to reject me. You love me and you want to know me. We'll come out of hiding. And really there's a process to this. And and the reason I wrote the book is, is to talk about how do we actually create an environment where people can be loved and they can be known. And so there's a process. We call it walking with lions. And it's just simply this. You guys interested? First is just to relate. You just have to start doing life together. That's what groups are about. That's, you know, just hanging out with people. But doing it on a regular basis, you just start relating. And take walks together. Drink coffee together. You know, do something fun together. Play top golf, which is like golf for people who can't play golf. But just do something on a regular basis. And what that will do, that will lead to trust. Spend enough time together, you'll, it'll lead to trust. Trust is where 
you start to tell your story. Hey, here's a little something about my story. Here's something about my journey I want you to know. And if somebody ever honors you by telling you their story, be a really good listener. Right? That trust phase is really the storytelling phase. It's like, it's not my secrets, but it's something that will help you get to know me. When there's enough relating and enough trusting over time, people will start to disclose. It's like, actually, there's something else beyond my story, something I've never told anybody. It keeps me up at night. I actually have some shame connected to it. Can I, can I share this with you? A lot of times, that's what we think is the end goal of like accountability groups and it's like just to tell them that, that kind of our dark secrets. That's actually not the end of the journey. It's essential, but it's not the end. There's actually another step after that called processing. Processing is, is, is listen to this. If I trust you enough to tell you my secrets, then I'm going to trust you enough to hear what you have to say in return. I remember sharing, I disclosed to my counselor some real specific details about the kind of abuse that my father the way he abused me. And, and that processing phase was like what I got back from my counselor. He got really angry. He did what to you? And it was over a Zoom call. So it was, it's like anger, but in miniature. You know, it's like, oh, you're adorable. And uh, anyway, but he got angry and, and I kind of started to borrow his anger, which can be healthy, you know? And he's like, that's torture. What he did to you was torture. He said, I mean, like, officially recognized methods of torture. And he's like, Jonathan, this is not your fault. You didn't deserve that. And I remember this processing moment for me. It was like to hear, because as a kid, I felt so much shame. I felt so responsible for that stuff. And it was like my critical thinking got froze to that age. But then all these years later, this counselor is through processing is saying, that's not your fault. That was evil. What was done to you? It was almost like my operating system got updated. You ever, you know, your phone says it's time to update your operating system and you just never get around to it. You just never give your phone permission to update. What happens? It gets a little glitchy. You ever been around somebody who's a little bit glitchy? What's that about? They're not, they're not willing or able to let people speak into that place in their life so they can keep updating those moments of critical thinking. But when you and I do that, when we go through relating, just doing life together, trusting where we begin to tell our story, disclosure where we say, you know what, here's what I'm really dealing with, and then I'm going to listen to what you have to say about it, and I'm going to let it update my life. Then what happens, remember I was talking about there's all these different versions of me? In other words, I've become disintegrated. <laughs> what happens when I'm in an atmosphere where I'm both loved and known is I begin to heal. It's like I become the same person I am with my wife as I am with my friends, as I am with my work relationships, as I am when I'm preaching. It's like, and then those, that shame stuff, it's like I find people that I trust. And there's even stuff in the book on how to know who to trust with your secrets. That's important because you can make huge mistakes. And I show it and I'm like, hey, I know you're not going to reject me, but can you help me with this? And we can heal. We can heal. There's a high authenticity, high attachment culture in this church. And I'm so thankful for that. In other words, this is a place where you can heal. If you embrace that kind of culture, if you live that way, you'll become fearless, powerful, genuine, unthreatened by the pain of other people. 
unthreatened by the successes of other people, unthreatened by the judgments of other people. Came across this quote. I don't know the source, but it says this. The greatest fear in the world is the opinion of others. And the moment you are unafraid of the crowd, you are no longer a sheep. You become a lion. And a great roar arises in your heart. It's the roar of freedom. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked run away even when no one's chasing them. They're just marked by fear. But godly people are as bold as lions. My prayer for every one of you is that you would know what it is to walk in an atmosphere to create a culture where the people in your life, and including you, are both loved and known so that you can be powerful, courageous, and unafraid, and the perfect love of God can cast out fear from your life. Amen? Came all the way from Denver to tell you that. You guys glad you came to church today?